they met me on the road coming into town. Minerva, Maria Teresa, Mamá, Dede, Pedrito, Nelson. Noris was weeping in terror. All of them were sure I had been singed to nothing from what they'd heard on the radio after the bombing. No. Patria Mercedes had come back to tell them all. Tell them all. But I couldn't speak. I was in shock, you could say. I was mourning that dead boy. I didn't keep count on how many had died. I kept my hand on my stomach, concentrating on what was alive. That's actor Adriana Sinanes narrating an excerpt from Julia Alvarez's novel, In the Time of the Butterflies. I'm Josephine Reed, and this is Artworks, produced at the National Endowment for the Arts. In 2010, In the Time of the Butterflies had been chosen for the big read, and we produced an audio documentary about the book as supplemental material. We were looking for someone to narrate excerpts of the book for us, someone equally at home in English and Spanish, and who understood the art of narration. Enter Adriana Sinanes. Adriana is an award-winning narrator who's recorded well over 100 audiobooks in both Spanish and English. To be fluent in different languages is one thing. To be able to perform in two languages, only using your voice to convey characters and nuance, that's a real gift. Adriana is also a gifted performer on the stage in both Spanish and English-speaking theater. So she's equally at home in the small confines of the recording booth, inhabiting all the characters of a book, as she is on stage, in costume, with colleagues in front of an audience. You know, I love theater and I love narrating, so I consider myself really lucky that I've been able to do what I like. Tell me about you. Where were you? Where were you born? Where were you raised? I was born in Uruguay, Montevideo, Uruguay, the capital. And when I was six, my mom remarried and we left and we, I was raised in Spain. We left for Spain. My, my stepfather was an architect. So we went there. I did all my elementary school years in Spain, in Madrid. And then things didn't work out very well and I came to live here with my dad at the age of 12. My dad was a violinist. His name was Israel Chorberg. He passed away a year and a half ago. And he was the concertmaster of American Ballet Theatre all through the 70s until 1983. He was concertmaster of mostly Mozart Festival and all the companies that would come from overseas, including Dance Theatre of Harlem and Alvin Ailey also here. I used to get tickets to everything all the time. And I used to go backstage to pick him up and see Makarov and Baryshnikov and all these amazing people, Pinkett Zuckerman, everybody, you name it, and, and, and I would shake their hands. So it was very, very privileged childhood. So art was always a part of your life. Yes, my mom was a painter, my father a violinist, as, as I said. My stepfather was also an architect and a painter. My husband is a musician, Pablo Zinger. He's a conductor and he's a pianist. That's how we met, actually, because I went to Manhattan School of Music for piano. Yeah, so a lot of people in the family are artists. And you grew up speaking both English and Spanish? No, I didn't speak English until I came here at the age of 12. 
The only thing I knew how to say was the cat is on the roof. <laughs> Where did that come from? I don't know. I don't know. I'm not sure. Then the first thing my father taught me was say fine. When people ask you, hi, how are you? Say fine. So the first word I knew how to say was uh, basically fine. <laughs> and I learned here, I learned by going to school. My dad just took me to what is now the lab school, 17th Street Public School, middle school. It wasn't a bilingual education. It was just submersed in English right away. So when you're a kid, your mind is like a sponge and you learn right away. As you said, you went to the Manhattan School of Music and studied piano. So music was your first love? Yeah. For me, when I was little and I came here, it was immediately ballet and piano, ballet and piano, ballet and piano. I studied at the American Ballet Theater School. Then um, I went to performing arts high school for music. While I kept studying ballet outside, it was never acting. I never thought it would be acting. How did you make the switch to acting? When I finally went to Manhattan School of Music, I realized I can play my pieces very nicely, but I'm not a complete musician, you know. I cannot read music easily. They also emphasize being a solo pianist at the time, maybe more than today, I'm not sure. It wasn't really for me. So the last year, my senior year, Spanish Repertory Theater on 27th Street. They were looking for chorus girls doing a musical there, a zarzuela, and, uh, which is a Spanish operetta. And they were looking for people, for girls that could sing and dance and act a little bit. And, you know, I could sing, I could dance. So I auditioned and I got a little role and I started. And then as soon as I got on stage, it was like, oh, my God, this is for me. <laughs> so it was good that I knew music. It was good that I knew to dance, to move on stage. So I did that. And then they asked me to do a couple of little roles in Doña Rosita the Spinster is the Lorca play. And there are a couple of little roles. One is a friend of Doña Rosita who actually, right after she comes on stage, plays a piano. So everything I did kind of came together. You know, I could play a little bit the piano, I could dance pretty well, and then I started acting. I started studying at HB Studios to hone in on the craft. It was my senior year. I finished my high school music, but from then on I didn't, I didn't do anything else except acting. You began at the Spanish Repertory Theater, yeah, which yes. it's a fabulous place. Yes. Did you also do English theater as well? Yes, I did um, quite a few plays, like a theater for the new city, and then children's theater with different companies, and a Ben Johnson play. Yeah, I, I try to do a lot of stuff. You know, anything that came my way, I would do, which is what I recommend young people to do. Just do everything. Then as the years go by, you choose and pick if you can. From the get-go, I did both languages until I was just a, a member of the Spanish Repertory Theater. When did you join the theater? In 1985, they asked me to join the company. Tell me about working at the Spanish Repertory Theater at such a young age. For me, that was a training ground. They treated me like royalty. They, they were wonderful to me. And through them, I won the Princess Grace Theater Fellowship. It is a repertory company, which is amazing. In, in the United States, there are very few repertory companies. So it was a great experience, nonstop. We would do five, six different shows per week. It, they would be in rep. So we'd do a Lorca today and Eduardo Machado tomorrow. We'd do a Zarzuela the next day. So you cannot stop learning from this. You know, It's just all kinds of styles and all kinds of roles. When you're doing plays in Spanish, I would imagine, just because the language itself is so different from English, that 
in a way, it has to be almost a different sensibility than when you're performing in English. Yeah, you know, um, I'm asked that question often. And I really don't know the answer. As an actress, you just immerse in the role from wherever it is. I mean, granted, my first language is Spanish, so there is an affinity to it. Uh, however, I have a wider vocabulary in English because I was raised here from 12 on. So even though I have a slight accent, you know, you learn much more sophisticated vocabulary. Like the big words are in Right, the big words, <laughs> the three-syllable words. <laughs> I'm not sure. I think they're they're in two different places in my brain, and neither of them neither of them is is heavier or weightier or deeper than the other. I think it depends on the role. I just talked to somebody who's a translator, and I'm fascinated by the way sensibility changes when language changes. Yeah, yeah. Well, if I step back and look at both languages. English is such a mix of languages. It's such a mix of all kinds of variations from different languages putting together in some kind of melting pot. Spanish, to me, is more colorful. I mean, things have gender. So in that sense, maybe the color of the language infuses something in the place. I don't know. It's strange. It's like I don't think Tennessee Williams, for example, works really well in Spanish. Just as I don't think Lorca works very well in English. You did the Spanish version of To Kill a Mockingbird. Yes, I did that last year. It was great. How many times do you get a book like that to narrate? Cuando mi padre fue admitido en el colegio de abogados, regresó a Maycomb y comenzó a ejercer. Maycomb, a unos 30 kilómetros al este del desembarcadero Finch, era la capital del condado del mismo nombre. La oficina de Areques, en el edificio del juzgado, contenía poco más que una percha para sombreros, una escupidera, un tablero de damas y un código de Alabama en perfecto estado. So To Kill a Mockingbird translated well into Spanish. Yes, absolutely. It was great. While we're on this, before we talk about your moving to audiobooks, in either your stage performances or in audiobooks, have you ever narrated the same book or performed the same role, both in English and in Spanish? Hmm. Um, I can't think of it at the top of my head. Actually, Eduardo Machado is a Cuban-American playwright, and he wrote a trilogy. I did the three plays, two at Repertorio at the Spanish Repertory Theater and one at Theater for the New City. The one at Theater for the New City was in English. I mean, that's the closest I can think of right at the top of my head. And there is a sing-song in the Spanish language that does not appear in English. There's the Cuban sing-song. There's the Cuban rhythm to speaking, which doesn't really... I mean, unless you put the accent on and everybody in the cast puts the same accent on, it's not going to translate. It's like Tennessee Williams, you know, the southern, you know. Exactly, yeah, right. Yeah. How do you translate that? You make it from the south of Spain, maybe, <laughs> but it's not going to be the same. <laughs> now, how did you move into narrating audiobooks? You have done... Over a hundred? Yeah, yeah. I believe it was 1983 or 1984. An agent sent me to this casting of an audiobook. It was a novel by Louis L'Amour. He's a Western writer in English. So, of course, they needed the role of Juanita. <laughs> you, know, you know how many Marias and Juanitas I've done? <laughs> and I went there and I auditioned and he cast me. That was the first audiobook, and I was really young. I was, had just started pretty much. 
And when I got there, audiobooks, at least at that time, or from what I can gather, they were done slightly different. So when I got there, there were about eight actors. One was the narrator, and the other six or seven were acting the parts. So the, the director and producer had broken them down. So we all acted the audiobook. But the fascinating thing was that they had this man who was in his late 60s come in with a little suitcase full of incredible stuff in it, like coconuts and bells and whistles and telephone, and he did all the sound effects. And this man had worked in radio many years before, when it was just fascinating, all the stuff that he could do with the sound. So what we did was an audiobook with sound effects. We acted the whole thing. It wasn't just one narrator, which is what eventually I, I started doing just one narrator doing all the characters and the narration, everything. So that was fascinating. I fell in love with it. So from that time on, did you become a full-fledged narrator? Did you begin doing lots of audiobooks? Well, not right away. I, I did little things, uh, documentaries, obviously commercials, which all actors do, industrials, industrial narrations, documentary narrations, and then eventually a company called Recorded Books, they're very big. They had a Spanish-language department for audiobooks for 10 years. And Manuel Herrera was the director of that department. And uh, we did a lot of books in Spanish, a lot of books. It was like 24 books in Spanish per year, and it was, it was absolutely great. However, the demographics have never caught on. So they, they, I think in 2010, they stopped the department. You know, it, my daughter, even though she's completely bilingual, if she were to get a, an audiobook, she would listen to it in English because she's English dominant. A generation older than I might not listen to audiobooks. It hasn't caught on yet. Also, in, in Spain and South America, it hasn't caught on either. That was my next question. Yeah, it hasn't caught on. But you also, obviously, you do books in English as well. Yes, when they need that, that slight accent, you know, when they need an accent that it fits an author from Spain or Latin America and Central America, <laughs> or, if it, if, or if it takes place in one of these countries. So they like to infuse it with a slight accent. Let's hear another sample. I returned to the place of my birth, to Teatlán, and to my own name 13 years ago. Mommy and Chucha, the ones who called me Chupita, are dead. Now, in the golden zone of Teatlán, the resort city of Sinaloa in Mexico, I sit in the chair of Tia Chucha on my roof, in the good light of the morning sun. The chair is the same. The roof is of a different house, mine. That's Adriana Sinanes reading Kissing the Virgin's Mouth by Donna Gersten. Adriana, let's talk about the process of narrating these books. How does it, how does it work? The process, basically, for me, is you, you read the book first, and then you read it again, and you break down what voices you want to do, what types of voices you want to do for each character. If it's in first person, you, want to, you might want to infuse that first person pretty much with your own voice so you don't veer off, and then do the other characters. And the other characters is not just pitch, it's, it's how would you act it. I mean, I, I always go from the point of view of how would I act it on stage? How would this person move? Or, you know, even when you're recording, you kind of move differently to add something to the character. I don't mean move big because you're working with a microphone, but there's some body language. And there's so many adjectives. You just write down the name and, and the name of the character and you write down a whole bunch of adjectives and then you have it in your brain. And 
It's quite an interesting process. It's like doing theater, doing a one-woman show where you do a whole bunch of characters on stage, but only with a microphone. And you also have to have a, a memory of what those voices are because yeah. that character has to have that same voice exactly. every time he or she speaks. Exactly. So more than the voice and more than the pitch, I think it helps with the color the adjectives you infuse in that character. Is it a nasty character? Is it a is it a sweet character? Is it a a velvety voice? I, you know, there's so many things you can do that it's not just pitch. I think the adjectives give you more than, oh, it was high pitch. Well, high pitch could be anything, you know. How is it doing then? Uh, <laughs> well, it's never going to sound like a man. Obviously. Therefore, yeah. There, <laughs> and, well, there are some people that can do men really well. There are some actresses out there that I just take my hat off. But nevertheless, you know, it, it still is how, how does this character speak more than does it sound like a man, you know, like, you know. <laughs> is this character rough, you know? It helps. And it helps to have a little pad where you write all that down. And I did one book in Spanish. It was a trilogy and it was for young adults. And it had like 35 women. It was like the Harry Potter, but for girls, kind of. And it was, in, for, it was written by Maite Carranza, which is a Spanish writer from Spain. And 35 women. It was incredible because all of them had traits of animals. And that helped so much that actually it helped me in other narrations put animal traits, maybe. And that was quite a lesson because I said, how am I going to do 35 women? You know? That is hard. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But it was so much fun. How long did it take you to do that? What are we talking about in terms of time? You mean to narrate a book or the or the process before narration? You've done the process. Yeah. Now you have the book and you go into the studio. Well. Obviously, depending on the size. It's two to one. You know, if it's a 10-hour book, you'll probably more or less be narrating for 20 hours. That's That's the kind of the percentage. And you're in a small booth? Yeah, in a small booth by yourself with the director. Hopefully, because a lot of times they do away with directors. You're just with the engineer who works as a director. But I, I think it's always good to have a third ear. Rarely do they say anything. That's the wonderful thing also. It, it says a little bit about they, let, they cast me because they know I can do it, so they let me do it. But they are just so good at saying, you know, well, maybe you could go this way, or maybe you could infuse this character with a little bit of this. Oh, it's terrific. And that's the third ear that you need. A lot of people are doing it at home, you know, with their own home studios, which I think is fantastic. But, I mean, you have to be really good at listening to yourself, uh, not only catching mistakes, but the nuances also of characters and storyline. I much rather work with a director and engineer. I, I don't like working alone. Is there a length of time that you can narrate, you find yourself getting into kind of a sing-songy almost groove? It where you have to, like, take a break so you can... You know where that happens, and you have to be careful, with a nonfiction book. With fiction, you're narrating, you're doing dialogues, you're doing characters, so it would be odd, you know, you would catch yourself right away getting into sing-song. But with nonfiction, you can, because it's, it's, just, it's just facts. A lot of times it's just lists or facts. You have to be careful to keep your audience engaged, so you can't fall into sing-song. You have to be very careful. You have to do it almost like a fiction book. Give it some character. <laughs> How is it going back and forth? 
I'm from the little booth to the stage. Oh, my God. I, you know, I'm so lucky. You know, I love theater and I love narrating. Unfortunately, there aren't that many Spanish books being done now, except the Library of Congress that does some. But it's great. I love it. You're on stage. You're, you're with a live audience. Every night is a different story. And then you're on the booth and it's a finished product. I've been, I consider myself really lucky that I've been able to do what I like. It's not easy for many people. Yeah. You know? How have you seen audiobooks change over the years? There's been such a growth in that business. I mean, as you say, unfortunately, not necessarily in Spanish, but in the business itself, it really is quite extraordinary. Well, yeah, I believe it's going from the mom and pop stores to like big time, you know, Macy's kind of. A, every book available is being recorded, every single book. I think a lot of celebrities are getting into the bandwagon. Um, it's a it's a beautiful thing to do. So finally, it's taken hold, and people have really taken to to audiobooks because they use them everywhere for cooking, for traveling, for at, at the gym, even when they're just relaxing in a beach. I mean, it, it doesn't matter. It has caught on with the imagination. People really love it. Let's go back to your work in the theater. I know a play of yours closed recently. Tell me about it. This play, uh, it was called Implications of Cohabiting. It was written by Vanessa Verduga. She's a young Equatorian woman. She actually was in the show, and she played the lead. And I played her mother. It was in English, and it was at Theatre Row at the Clermont Theatre. And it was nice because you got to see, well, for me, the typical Hispanic family who, you know, one is an architect, one is a lawyer, they're dysfunctional. It's just a family, a Hispanic family, as opposed to the trade characters. Is that how you say it in, in English? The trade characters, quasi comedia del arte, you know, the, the maid, <laughs> you know, the usual Hispanic characters yeah. that you see um, the everywhere. Stock the, the stock characters. There you go. The, the stock characters that are the drug dealer or the janitor or the maid or the nurse. This was just a Hispanic family, like any family, you know, typical family with issues. It was just a great run, all of August at the Clerman, and it was just a great bunch of people to work with. So do you like to stagger work, do a stage play, do an audio book, do a stage play, do an audio book? Is that how you work it? You know, it depends on the situation. Before that show at the Clerman Theater, I did a show with Teatro Sea, which is the Society of Educational Artists in the Clemente Sotoveles. We took it. It was a big puppet show. And an actor and I were storytellers of A Midsummer Night's Dream. So the actor and I were the storytellers on stage, full costume and everything, moving, dancing, whatever, with a big book, doing all the voices. And that was such a treat because it was combining theater and audiobooks. In a way, you know, you're there and as the a storyteller. And the puppets behind you were the characters? Well, the puppets were the characters. We were actually doing the voices for the puppets, but we were seen and we were in complete yeah. costume. And it was like an Afro-Caribbean take on Midsummer Night's Dream with these huge, gigantic puppets, medium puppets, small puppets, tiny puppets. We did it here and we took it to Puerto Rico. And it was the first time I went to Puerto Rico ever. It was just beautiful. It was just beautiful. And yeah. that was in Spanish? That was in Spanish and in English. We do one show in English, one show in Spanish, and, and it was outdoors. Oh, so um, there was something you did in both Spanish and English. Yes, there you go. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. Well, you see, you need that 30-year, right? <laughs> when I did it in English, the character voices 
were somewhat different than in Spanish. Some. Well, Hermia and Helena, for example. Hermia, I made her with, um, with a lisp. So that worked well in both languages. Hermia had a lisp, and she was sweet and simple and, and kind of silly at times. So that worked in both languages. But then I wasn't really getting Helena in English until I thought of Irene Dunn or, or Catherine Hepburn, you know, 1930s and a little bit like this, you know. And I started doing Helena a little bit like this, like swell, everything swell. <laughs> and I went, oh, my God, I could never do that in Spanish. In Spanish, she just sounded very Caribbean, or uh, I think I did her Caribbean and a little rough, and it just wasn't translated. Can you give me an example? In Spanish? In Spanish? Bueno, chica, tú sabes, tú hablas un poquito así, como un poquito cubana, tú sabes, y tienes la, la cosita esa, la musiquita que sube y baja, <laughs> that kind of thing. But it wasn't translating, you know, that accent in English. I wanted to do something else. There I am doing something in English. So things like that, things like that was a treat to do, was really a treat to do. So in one show, you combined English and Spanish and theater and audiobooks. Yes. Yeah, wow. but it was like funny because I, combining theater and audiobooks on stage, it, I mean, I didn't even know how to, how to explain it. I mean, where, where else would I have done, you know, it's like voicing puppets. It was just beautiful. It was just so much fun to do. It costs a lot to go to the theater. I find. Yeah. Um, Broadway does. Broadway. Yeah. But even off-Broadway. Yeah, it depends know, on the company, it, right? Everything has gotten so expensive. Rentals have gotten so expensive. Insurance has gotten so expensive. You know, the actors are not getting paid so much more. It's more about the logistics of putting a show together, producing the show. It's gotten so expensive. The youth of America, who's working hard, it's not easy for them unless they wait for a lottery ticket or they wait online for standing room if they ever get in, you know. As you say, it's hard then to generate new audiences for theater because it's self-selecting and the people who have money are the people basically who can go. Yeah, pretty much. Yeah. But that makes me makes me think about Spanish language theater. It's not as expensive at all. That's that was my not question. Not at all. Not at all. If it's an equity house, you know, $25, $30, something like that, it's doable. It's doable. Um, again, it depends on your circumstances, of course. It's not like Broadway and some off-Broadway houses. No, the Hispanic theater is very accessible. So tell me what's next for you. Right now, nothing. <laughs> right now, absolutely nothing. We're, that's how it is. That's how the business is. All of a sudden, you know, you just finished a play, you finished doing this narration and that and you know and then right there's now, this there's this lull it's always been like that as a freelancer but uh you can't worry too much i'm sure something else will come up if i do it one play a year i'm happy <laughs> adriana thank you for coming in thank you thank you so much this has been so much fun thank you <laughs> That was actor and narrator Adriana Sinanes. You've been listening to Artworks, produced at the National Endowment for the Arts. To find out how art works in communities across the country, keep checking the Artworks blog or follow us at NEA Arts on Twitter. For the National Endowment for the Arts, I'm Josephine Reed. Thanks for listening.